You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 146 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and with me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? Full of energy, and you? <laughs> That's good. I'm, I'm all right. It's been a long week, but I'll make it. I want to make sure that everyone knows, don't waste your time worrying that you might crack the screen or the case back on your new iPhone X. Brace for impact with Specs Presidio cases that give you up to 15 feet of drop protection and work with the iPhone's wireless charging. Spec even has the clear cases for all of you sort of naturalists that want to show off the iPhone's sleek new design. You can shop for an iPhone 8, 8 Plus, and iPhone 10 case in stores or online at specproducts.com slash Apple Insider. Spec is spelled S-P-E-C-K, products, of course, dot com slash Apple Insider. So, Neil, tell me about your iPhone 10 experience. So I got my iPhone 10 last Friday. I was not as lucky as Dan getting it early, but I did uh, get it in the mail late in the day from UPS. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I mean, it's a very, very nice device. Um, it feels great in the hand. The construction is second to none. It, it feels even more premium than any iPhone before it. Uh, it's just, it's a really gorgeous device. There are things that um, I'm a little iffy on that I expect it to be. There are things that I'm surprised that I like and some things that, you know, are just whatever. Um, but it's uh, overall, I'm, I'm very, very happy with it. I could not recommend it highly enough. My thought, I was thinking about this, is uh, I've got an I- original iPhone still around from 2007. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple of other ones from along the way in between. And the original iPhone still feels very good in the hand, but it's yes. kind of quaint in terms of what it is compared to to an iPhone 8 Plus, for example. I have one right in front of me, so now I have it in my hand. The 4-gig uh, model you got there. Yes. As as much as we've seen a, a big difference between those two phones, in, in the iPhone 10 is is that much of a leap forward, right? It's going to look as quaint now, uh, as quaint 10 years from now as the original one does now. I mean, I don't, I mean, maybe, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, do 10-year-old laptops look quaint? Uh, yes. Yes, they do. At a certain point, <laughs> at a certain point, technology matures to a point where it can only evolve so much. I mean, even the most revolutionary takes you see on laptops right now still have the base, same basic concept. Even the first iPhone still has many of the same basic concepts as the iPhone X, which is a testament to how good the design was on the first iPhone. You know, it really defined every smartphone thereafter. But I mean, this is certainly a big rethink on how to use the iPhone. It's, it's. Um, I, I hesitate to call almost almost anything revolutionary when it's an evolution of things that came before it. But I think ditching the home button is, uh, by and large, it, it's going to be a controversial decision. I don't think it matters now because the people that are buying are going to be early adopters. But there's a huge contingent. I mean, let's not forget that Apple just reported their earnings last week and they had you know record sales of the iPhone 8 at launch. And uh, that's that phone is doing very well. So there's a huge contingent of customers out there who want to have that similar experience. And even for somebody like myself, who's tech savvy, who messed around all this stuff, whatever. One of the things that I was surprised by in using the iPhone 10, um, it caught me off guard, was that I have trouble invoking the multitasking screen. Like the swipe up and pause kind of thing. Is that what yeah. you have to do? <clears throat> yeah. Like you have to kind of swipe up and down, but there's like different ways to do it. So one way to do it is you can swipe like at a 45 degree angle, like over to the right and that'll pull it up. Another thing you can do is swipe up in 3d touch and that will invoke it, or you can swipe up and then down. But like the whole interface is very weird. Like the apps feel kind of floaty. Like I feel like I'm just kind of skating on ice when I'm using it. 
I think you could use some improvement. I think that it is not very clear, not very user-friendly. And there's a few elements like that that I think Apple is going to have to work on simplifying. Like, for example, um, to turn off the device uh, to do a hard reset, you know, it used to be you'd hold the home button and the side button. But now that you don't have a home button, um, they have this complex button press where you do, you know, up volume up, volume down, then hold the side button. That's the kind of stuff that loses some of the simplicity of the first it feels one. feels like and- Android. And, and and I think that's okay. I think it's all right to allow a more power user experience. But the question becomes, when we inevitably get to a point where no devices have home buttons, what do we do then to not alienate the millions and millions and millions of customers who may actually be the majority of Apple's customers who like that simplicity and who are comfortable with it and who like having that home button down there that can always save them when they're in a pinch? You turn on the... Uh soft home button and accessibility. <laughs> I mean, you could. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. I wrote a tip about that just to show that you could do it. And people like freaked out, like, you got to learn how to use it the new way. It's like, you people need to lighten up. We did a, a live Q&A with Dan last week and all the people on YouTube, which I imagine most people on YouTube are a little younger probably than our podcast listeners. They all wanted to know about accessibility, assistive touch features. They, they all like to tweak and customize and make it, you know. And so they kept yelling at Dan on the YouTube live. They're like, they're like, show us assistive touch, show us the accessibility, show us this, show us that. Um, so I ended up writing a tip on it because people are obviously interested in that. And then a lot of our older readers were very upset and they're like, just learn how to use it the new way. And it's like, I'm, I'm not personally doing this. I'm just showing you that there's a way to put a virtual home button on your phone if you want to. Right. You, you said something a minute ago that I'm, I want to try and keep in mind. You said that it was, um, confusing and not necessarily user-friendly. Yes. Okay. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but I want to hold those words in mind. Okay. Um, now you got, you got another tip about it, which was the ability to turn off the colors and invert the display, and uh, save battery life on the so iPhone. So yeah, 10. we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and either later today or early tomorrow, we're going to have a video and a story on this with some really cool information. So this is another one where people on Twitter roasted me, and and y'all need to calm down. All right. Um, I was out on Sunday, day out on the town. Didn't have a because there are no battery cases for the iPhone 10 yet or whatever. So I just decided on a whim because I know how OLED technology works, that if you uh, have mostly black colors on there and shades of gray and certain colors consume more power than other, whatever, I decided to do a combination of Apple's pure black wallpaper, which comes with the iPhone 10, kind of a quiet feature that they didn't really advertise, but it's one way to save battery. Um, and then I also implemented invert smart invert colors, which makes it so that when you're using apps like Safari, instead of having a white background with black text, it has a black background with white text. And then um, I did grayscale, so it doesn't display any colors at all. It's just shades of white on top of black. And my battery lasted much longer. Um, I was out with my wife who has an iPhone 10, and I was intermittent, intermittently using it. I wasn't using it all day because I had the brightness down. It made it hard to read. This is not something I would recommend that you do all the time. It was just more of a proof of concept. And it was working very well. So I took a photo of it with my wife's iPhone 10 of my iPhone 10 and just have it's on a wooden table and you can see the black and white screen on the wooden table. It's this cool contrast. It almost looks like it's been photoshopped. And I tweeted it out and I, I just said, uh, iPhone 10 OLED display plus grayscale plus smart invert colors plus low power mode equals ridiculous battery life. And it was very popular on Twitter. It got all over the place. Fine, whatever. But there were a bunch of people on there calling me out like angry 
that I tweeted this out without any hard numbers or or tests or this or that. And it's like, yes, because Twitter is the place where people are doing like hard hitting research and journalism. Here's what you need uh, to know. Well, you know, first, first we have to go put on our lab coats <laughs> and then we're going to go into the lab yeah. with our, our scientific regulated, well-measured equipment so that we can go ahead and perfectly construct a test that tests this hypothesis. God forbid I'd be out on the town on a Sunday and see something cool and want to share it with the world. You know, I, it's, it's rare that you'd be out on the town. You know, you're not really usually allowed out of the house. <laughs> I know, right? So, so anyhow, all of that is to say that uh, we did, as promised, follow up and do some actual testing with this. So, um, uh, you have to understand battery tests are impossible for a number of reasons. Uh, how are you using the device? Um, how often are you using it? What apps are you using? What do you have installed? What's your brightness set at? Are you wearing an Apple Watch? Are you connected to a Bluetooth accessory? Uh, what's your cellular signal? Are you connected to Wi-Fi? You know, are you using GPS? Are you navigating? Are, are you, you using the GPU? Right. There, there are just so many things that that weigh into that. That there's no such thing as an accurate battery test. The best thing you can do is just either do a torture test or just give kind of like. Mm, you know, uh, under these contrived settings, yeah, under this specific use case where testing was conducted this way for this long, we found X and X can be extrapolated to mean something else. But we don't know that that's actually true. Let me give you our contrived tests and what they proved. And I think this is really exciting and really cool. So we did a we did two tests. Uh, number one with uh, Apple's pure black wallpaper and no other changes, just the pure black wallpaper. Brightness was set to 100%. iPhone 10 battery charged to 100%. Left it on the all black uh, wallpaper. Left it for three hours, and the battery went from 100% to 77%. So it lost 33%, a third of its battery. Right. Uh, well, no, sorry, 23%. I can't do math. 23%. So less than a third, less than a quarter of its battery. And that already shows just how difficult battery tests are because you're asking Neil Hughes to do math. Yeah. Well, you're screwed already. <laughs> so for, for the same test now, we went back to the default colorful paper on the I wallpaper on the iPhone 10. Same conditions, charged to 100%, uh, 100% battery life. And the battery went from 100 to 61%. So you actually saved 16% battery life by just changing the wallpaper. That was it. Now, for an even more extreme example, uh, wh what we did was loaded up a website. So we put Reddit on there, which is a mostly white website with black text, right? And uh, again, crank the backlight up to maximum. But instead of just the wallpaper messing, because that wouldn't apply on a website, obviously, we did the smart invert colors. So that takes a white website and turns it black with the text white. And what we found was, with a mostly black screen and just a little bit of white text on it on Reddit, over three hours, the battery with maximum brightness dropped from 100% down to just 85%. Now, when you did the exact same test at 100% brightness with no smart invert colors on, it went from 100% down to 28%. So you're looking at nearly a 60% difference in battery consumption just from, from using smart invert colors. So... All of this is to say that the iPhone X has an OLED display. If you have an older iPhone, don't bother with this. It's not going to do anything for you. The advantage of an OLED display is it does not have a backlight in the traditional sense. An LCD screen, which has been on every iPhone prior to the X, requires a backlight. It requires a film back there that pushes out light through the pixels to make them illuminated. OLED technology is completely different. It illuminates each individual pixel on its own.
And so when you are displaying a black pixel, the power consumption is greatly reduced, if not negligible, uh, so that it's not consuming power on the screen. And the right, screen is actually you one of the most powerful. don't need to consume power to make a black pixel bright. The black it's, pixel just basically stays it, off. It stays off. Exactly. So uh, this is something that, you know, when I tweeted it out, I knew that it would work anyhow because it's the physics of how the displays work. And this is something that Samsung phones did like four or five years ago. They have a grayscale super power saver mode. But I was just demonstrating to people that don't maybe know this, which apparently are a lot of people, uh, that you can do this. You, you can, And if you want to go to the extreme, you can do low power mode. You could do low brightness. You could do grayscale. You could do smart invert colors. And, you know, if you don't use your phone a lot, you could probably get a few days out of the thing. Yeah, but Neil, you have to use it as it's intended. You have to use it just <laughs> as Apple ships it out of the box yeah, right. without any changes. Yeah. How dare I mean, you? I would never I would never do this on the regular. This is something, you know, your battery's down to 15%. You're trying to get home. You just want to squeeze everything you can out of it. So um, instead of tapping low power mode, this is Neil's tip to how to get ultra low power mode. Yeah, this is an ultra low power mode. It's super cool. You can make it uh, more convenient by doing accessibility, uh, triple click on the side button, or you can also add it to control center. So it makes it easier for you to access. Again, not recommending people use their phone like this on a daily basis. It's ugly. And I mean, it looks interesting, I guess. Uh, uh, Dan said it looks like a an old Next computer. But um, I mean, you know, it's not the most attractive way of using it. The, the invert colors look messed up on a lot of stuff. It's hard to read. But if you want to squeeze out more battery life and, you know, just send away some messages or whatever, this is a way to do it. So brilliant. Yeah. I know we've, we've moved through that story pretty quickly. I need to go ahead and talk to you for a moment about Eero. So in, in your house, do you have a, a single Wi-Fi router, Neil? I do. I have a uh, Apple Airport. Right. And that works fine for your, your smaller apartment that doesn't have any dead zones. Correct. Right? Yeah. If you've got a larger amount of space that you're trying to cover with Wi-Fi or the construction materials in your home have dead spots, the single router Wi-Fi model just doesn't really work well, especially if you're trying to do increasingly high bandwidth operations or have a larger number of clients pushing high bandwidth. And oh, yeah. So well, like even in an older, like especially in an older building like mine, the way that they construct them blocks so much wireless interference. I step yeah, out my door. and blaster for the walls kills it, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I step out my door and my Wi-Fi is gone. Like, you know, most like when I lived in Florida and had, you know, one of those cheap homes that they just throw up overnight, you know, you get Wi-Fi like a block away. Here I step out of my door. There's no Wi-Fi. Yeah. Lath and plaster in, in old construction kills the signal. So. There, there's a solution for this kind of problem, though, especially if you're having trouble getting it into different rooms in your apartment or house, and that is a distributed system like Eero, E-E-R-O, Eero. So whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero has the power to blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi via Ethernet, wireless, or combination of it. And what you end up getting is a, a main base station and then either two identical second and third base stations or what they call beacons, which just plug into the wall outlet. And you, you plug it in, you plug it into the wall outlet, it expands coverage to any room. And they've got an additional third 5 gigahertz radio in there. So it's tri-band. What the benefit of this is, is that you have your 2.4 gigahertz and your 5 gigahertz bands for your client devices. But that third 5 gigahertz radio acts as the backhaul between the base stations and beacons so that you're not cutting your bandwidth in half for your client devices. Mm -hmm. It's got a separate radio specifically for moving information between the routers and base stations so that you can make multiple hops to get your data back to your your internet connection. It's a really cool thing. And that makes it twice as fast as the version 1 Eero and twice as fast as many of the other Wi-Fi solutions that are out there. 
With the addition of a Thread radio, Eero can connect to low-power devices like locks, doorbells, and other sensors using Google's Thread technology. The Eero Beacon is half the size, but even more powerful than the original Eero. And whichever you choose, whether it's the the three-pack of of Eero base stations or the Eero with two beacons, Eero's incredible customer support is easy to call and get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within about 30 seconds. Now, we've tested Eero in in our Apple Insider labs in the past, and... (laughs) No, we have though, and we've we've used measurements on um, signal to noise and measured in decibels. We've used bandwidth tests to see how much data we can push through and when we things start to fall apart, depending on how many clients we're adding and things like that. And Eero is almost without any question. There, there's just no other competitor I can think of that was as fast, as easy to set up. All of the others that we've tried have had additional steps or additional pages to wait through kind of thing. And even though on the whole they were easy to set up, Eero is just blindingly easy to go ahead and plug it in and call it a day and have it work. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, So for free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com. Select overnight as the shipping option and enter crunchy at checkout. So that's Eero.com, offer code C-R-U-N-C-H-Y at checkout. Solve your Wi-Fi problems. That's my opinion. Now, not all is rosy and perfect in the Apple world. And I just installed an update to uh, to iOS on my phone to solve that problem. <laughs> and and I, I think they misnamed the uh, iOS update because they, they named it iOS 11.1.1. And I feel like they ought to have named it iOS 11.1.i. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to help me out here and describe a little bit what I'm talking about? This was I'm, something. I'm so jokes I, and, I don't know what happened here. Last week, I got a text from a buddy and he said, do you know why I am trying to write the letter I and I'm sending weird characters? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, buddy. And he sent me a screenshot of him like, I've never seen this before. And then he sent it to me, and then literally the next day it started showing up for me. So I, nobody really knows what I, happened here. I have yet to be afflicted by this. It hadn't. It never affected me. I have a theory about what may have happened here. I don't know, because it's, it's kind of a secret sauce about how this stuff works, but Apple says that they don't uh, you know, send stuff from your keyboard and whatever uh, to the cloud. And that makes sense. Okay. But they do read messages, and they don't send it to the cloud. I don't want to make this sound like conspiracy theories, but they do read messages that you receive in the Messages app so that they can offer contextually aware uh, responses. So if somebody sends right, you- Right, but is that machine learning happening on the phone, or is that something that's going back to the cloud? Good question. Uh, I believe it's happening on the phone, but uh, and that may explain why it, this went this way. Because uh, something happened. Obviously, there was some bug on the back end as well. But my theory as to why it spread so weirdly, but then seemed to like take over because it went from like I had never heard of it to everybody was doing it all over social media on accident, on purpose, sending me texts. It was just all over the place. My theory is that because QuickType uh, prediction, uh, which ties into autocorrect, reads the last message that you receive, that it almost spread like a virus. Like if someone sent it to you, and then it showed up on your phone, then your QuickType read it and added it to its vocabulary through some sort of bug. And then that became like, because it was trying to send like an emoji character and it would change, um, it would change basically the letter I to a, a, the letter A and then followed by a question mark in a box. Right. So here's, here's what happened is that when you type the letter I, 
Yeah. You type the letter I as a lowercase letter. And when you press the space bar, it's supposed to say quick type, okay, change that to the capital I because it's the proper pronoun. Right. Right. And what was happening is that on pressing the space bar, instead of substituting the capital I, it substituted the letter A with this Unicode symbol. Right. And nobody and, really knows why, and nobody knows why it spread the way that it did. Because it's been around since, like, 11.0, as far as I can tell. But And that's, like, two months ago. And it just kind of slowly started to make its way around. I, the best theory I got, and it's crazy, I know. I have, no, I have no evidence to back this up. But based on the fact that it went from, like, nobody saw it to everybody had it, and it was on multiple iOS device or versions, um, and it even was showing up on Macs and stuff, um, I, I think that it may have been like one of those weird things where the quick type was picking up on something and then it learned it and added it to its own vocabulary and then went from there. I would love to see yeah. like, uh, what, what do they call that? Like when they, when they research like, uh, postmortem. No, no. Like no. I, you've seen those, like, uh, where they have those like, uh, graphs where it's like, uh, who, who, uh, dated who in high school or whatever. And like there, you know, there's like, there's like clusters, you know, there's like the typhoid Mary uh, that, that. <laughs> and like all that oh right you want you want a cdc analysis yes. of how the disease spread i want to know where it started who it spread amongst first and then how it got to the wider world and what the tipping point was where it became like where it went from this thing that a few people had to like everybody had it yeah i want to know how the pandemic broke out yes now there are other things in this update too including the update for the 802.11.r crack Wi-Fi problem that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, some accessibility options, and also, interestingly, a fix for an issue where Hey Siri stops working. Yeah, I haven't had that problem, so. I I have had an issue with Hey Siri not working properly, and uh, I was glad to have this update. I'm not sure if it's fixed yet or not, but. Speaking of software, I I just looked down on my watch is restarting, so I don't know what's going on. There we go. So this is a good time. Well, this is a good time. So I was telling you about this before we began, mm-hmm. that there, there are some people that I follow on Twitter who suggested that he had a conversation with someone who would know, someone who allegedly would work at Apple. And he, he posted some of the conversation for us to see. And so I'm just going to read it aloud, and we can talk about that a little bit. And it's, quote, You know, the Apple community is making a bad mistake. They take what Apple does and then try to prove that it's good. Instead, the community should take what Apple does and judge it on its own merit. I see Apple's customers have no problem with that. If there's one thing Apple isn't right now, it's efficient. Imagine it like this. It'll be a bit of an odd analogy. You have a stroke. A part of your brain dies. The rest of your brain tries to compensate. Whose fault is it? Nobody. Apple simply lacks key people in their team to implement their values. They talk about them, but they can't carry them out as well anymore. It's not anybody's fault. And it's not a simple fix. When there's trouble, we're first in denial. Here's why Apple's choices are right. Then there's anger. It's XYZ's fault. None of this helps. You know, it's kind of been this sort of problem where a lot of people either suffer these problems and then disregard them and blame them on something else or, or say, well, it's all beta, but Apple will fix it all because Apple is always right. It's there's sort of a push and a pull because what are the better options, right? Uh, you know, I mean, so much of this stuff, it's like, who cares? Like this eye bug, did that really affect you that a few of your texts went out and looked weird? Come on. No, it didn't. But we talked about this in, in the greater sense about problems that people have had with High Sierra or other problems with iPhone. I mean, this it took one literally 10 seconds. Pantheon of stuff. It took literally 10 seconds for my phone, my watch to reboot. Like, I'm okay. Listen, yeah. do I want it to be Why better? Yes. I don't know. It just rebooted. I don't know. It's beta. I'm, first of all, I'm running beta software, so I can't even complain about it. I'm running the okay, I'm running the four point two beta. Yeah. But like, my biggest problem was 
Um, Hi, Sierra completely broke messages for me. I was not receiving iMessages on my computer. They were going like hours at a time without notes showing up. And my I wasn't getting notifications on my watch or my phone. So I was missing messages, sometimes important ones. That's a problem. That was a big problem. Yeah. And, and I called Apple to task on it. We talked about it on the podcast. I wrote about it. Uh, you know, but some of this stuff, it's like, I mean, yes, bugs happen in software. Who cares? Well, it used to be that Apple would first get something working, then get it working fast, right? It would they, they used they'd to release be. it. This is the team that couldn't even get Mac OS out on time and had to reallocate sources to make sure they got iOS out on time. I mean, come on. This is not anything new. Yeah. Apple has always had a one track mind, and you can see that a lot of times in their products coming out. They've been very focused on the iPhone lately, and the Mac has suffered for it, and people notice. Well, so in, in five short days after the iPhone X shipped, we've already shifted to talking about upcoming AR glasses in 2020. <laughs> well, I don't want to stop talking about the iPhone X yet because I want to tell you about some of the stuff that surprised me about it. Can we do that? Yes. Cool. So, But I'm going to come back to it. No, I want to talk about the AR glasses too because I'm fascinated by that. But uh, some of the stuff in the iPhone obviously lays the groundwork for that too. So I think this is all very exciting. So one thing that I uh, really enjoy that I did not expect to at all, in the least, I I've told you on the podcast, I told the listeners I don't care. Wireless charging. I'm shocked. I did not think that I would enjoy it as much as I do. But here's the thing. I told you. Didn't I, I tell you? You you did. But but here's the thing. I have a dock in my bedroom and I have a dock in my office. And in the bedroom, it's fine because I go to bed. I put it on the dock. I can see it. Well, whatever. In the office, a lot of times I, you know, you just put your phone down and you don't think about it for three hours because I'm getting notifications on my computer or my watch or whatever. I'm just not paying attention to my phone a lot. And, which is good. I don't want to be paying attention to my phone. My phone's still doing stuff. It's fetching for email. It's making sure I'm getting texts. It's doing all this stuff. So it drains the battery. And so I went on Amazon just on a whim. I was just like, well, I better try this wireless charging, you know, to test, make sure it works, whatever. So I got one for my wife and one for myself. She wanted a, a simple black one that matched her nightstand. And I wanted uh, something I got. It's like, a, it looks like a wooden, it looks like a wooden block, essentially. It's a small little thing. Just sits on the, my the desk. Bamboo covered block, basically. Yeah, basically. It's yeah. tiny. And yeah, just set the phone down. And so now it just sits next to my computer. When I'm done with my phone, I just set it down. It's always topped off. And then when I'm ready to go, I get up, pick up the phone. Not a big deal. Don't have to undock. Don't have to line it up. Don't have to mess it up. It's just sitting right there. Did not expect to like wireless charging at all. I'm very pleased with the wireless charging. Um, I mentioned the multitasking that needs some work. I finally just this morning felt like I was getting the hang of it, but that does need a little bit of work, but swiping to return home is great. I have no problem with that. It feels very natural, very fluid, very easy. That part works great. The part that doesn't work so great. And I kind of expected this was going to happen. And this is because I don't like big phones. I use control center all the time because I have home kit and it's very easy for me to just swipe and access my, my home controls there. If you're holding the phone and cradling it from the bottom, your thumb cannot reach the upper right corner to access control center. I mean, unless you got gargantuan hands. So you got to kind of choke up on the phone to get up there. Now, obviously you have the same problem with notification center, but that's not as much of an issue because you can always just lock the phone and then you just get the same thing as notification center anyhow, since they've combined the two. But control center is only in the upper right corner. So you got to kind of choke up to get there and whatever. So I've seen this suggested in a few places and I would like to see it as well. Um, either a double tap the home bar at the bottom to invoke control center option, or they have reachability um, by swiping down on the home bar as an option that you can enable in accessibility. If they gave you the option to instead turn that into invoking control center, that would make it so you could access it from the bottom of the screen with one hand, not a big deal. 
Um, <clears throat> that's a that's a small change that uh, I'm not super happy about and might be my biggest gripe with the phone, frankly. And then the last thing I want to talk about is Face ID. A lot has been said about Face ID, and, and rightfully so. It's a big change, and it's, for the most part, really great. Um, I got my phone last Friday. I went and saw a movie. I went to a concert afterwards. I was wearing a hat. It had no issues seeing my face, recognizing me, even after just a few hours of use. You know, they say it gets better over time. Um, dark room, dark movie theater, different angles, whatever. Works great. Two issues that I have with it. Uh, number one, the default setting is that it doesn't show you the details of a notification on the screen until it recognizes your face. And it's a little bit slower than Touch ID in that respect. Now, you can disable right, this. but that's a security provision, right? You don't want everyone to be able to see the details of your notifications. It, it's a security provision that's always, well, has not always, but has been in iOS for years, but has been off by default. So that it only allowed you to view the notifications when you rested your finger on the home button and it scanned for Touch ID. Now it's on by default. Your notifications don't show any details until it scans your face and then you can see it. But there's like a good second and a half, pick up your phone, can't see anything on the notifications, and then it and then it uh, shows you them. And so I'm considering going into the settings and turning off that feature because while just holding it up, swiping, letting it scan your face is just as fast as Touch ID when you go through all the motions, if you just want to glance at your notifications, it actually takes a little bit longer. So I have a problem with that. And then my last problem, and that's solvable. That's very easy. I can just turn it off in settings. It's not really a big deal. My last problem is the stupidest problem you're going to hear, but I'm going to tell it to you anyhow. Face ID does not work well in the morning when I wake up and roll out of bed and have my ha face halfway covered by a pillow. And that is the one situation where, uh, you know, if, what's what's wrong with you? <laughs> if you <laughs> that is the stupidest problem. I, I And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm telling you. Touch ID. That was a scenario where touch ID worked great for me. Unlocking my phone, pick it up, get in, not have an issue with face ID. That is the only obstruction, the only issue I've had. So. Yeah, if you're the type of person who, you know, likes to unlock your phone in your pocket or under a table discreetly in a meeting, you're going to have problems. Um, and that is my specific use case problem for me. So it's dumb, but there you go. Can we move on? We can. All right. So I've got a, a quick story here that I wanted to talk about where Apple purchased a, a Envisage technology, which is the company behind Quantum Film. Um, it's a decade old technology, but the idea is that it takes up less space than traditional camera sensors and gives better performance characteristics. Right. So this this is one more in a long list of things that Apple has done in terms of acquisitions and inventions to try and increase the quality of their cameras. The, the way that this technology works is it uses quantum dots dispersed on a grid, coded on a substrate as the image sensor. And they the claims are that it can absorb the same amount of light as a conventional sensor, but on a layer that's one-tenth the thickness. So... You know, one one speculation might be that this is the way that we get rid of the camera bump in the future. Maybe. You still have a problem, though, with things like Zoom. Yeah, well, at any rate, you'd agree this is a part of, of Apple's continued search for, for improvements for the camera. Right? I don't think anybody's excited about the camera bump. So, yeah, if they could get rid of it, that would be awesome. But the laws of physics may get in their way. So, You know, we, we, we say that, but we should be careful to not accept that things are as they will always be, I, right? Right, absolutely. You know, we years ago, we wouldn't have been able to have the iPhone that we have today because of laws of physics and what was available at the time. Right. And then we got better battery technology and we got the ability to shrink the uh, PCB and use better, have better efficient use of space on it to where there's actually almost no unused space on the PCB in the iPhone X. Mm. 
but there's a reason why there are still telephoto lenses for full-size cameras. I mean, if you want to have detail at a distance, you need to have, it just takes up space to do that type of thing. So, um, today, today, and, and, and maybe that will change, but I say that to caution people not to get too excited about losing the camera bump. I think it's here to stay for a while. Yeah. And talking about things in terms of the future, you know, like I said a few minutes ago, we had the iPhone 10, and then five days later, we're already busy talking about an augmented reality headset. Right. So the latest rumors, there there was a Bloomberg report that kind of kicked this off a little bit, stating that there, Apple was working on an augmented reality headset, given a code name T288. It would be a standalone unit with its own display and processor, and would run its own operating system named ROS. <laughs> And uh, that that they're thinking about a release uh, for 2020. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, it's it's all exciting and interesting. You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, wearable devices lately because in the context of, of my watch, you know, I'm very happy with my watch. But the one thing, if I leave my phone behind, as I said, is I'm missing a camera. And so I've been trying to think about and this ties into AR in a number of ways, just in terms of miniaturization of technology, making efficient use of space, um, and giving people kind of what they want and what they expect, um, and also not having it be ugly. And so I was thinking, like, how could you put a watch, put a camera on a watch, have it take, you know, selfies and do FaceTime, which people would want, have it take outward-facing photos, with people, which people would want, and have it not be creepy, which people would want, you know, like, you know, some, somebody's, I remember wearing Google glass. I know what happened. Right. And, and that, this is something that Apple is going to face with AR and it's something they face with the watch too. So let's say for a second that a uh, camera on the watch is an inevitability. Okay. How do you do that wh- without messing up the aesthetic of the device, without making it creepy? Um, and without having this like weird, like, what are you going to do? Have two cameras. You're going to have one mounted on the front. That looks two giant camera bumps. <laughs> With a crown with a red dot sandwiched in between. So I've been thinking if they could somehow, if they could somehow, I'm, I'm joshing I, I, you there a little bit. But I've been thinking if they could somehow manage to find a way to embed a camera into the display, like maybe with micro LED technology or something, right? And again, you have to think about this in the context of how Apple lays the groundwork for future devices when they bring stuff out. And so a lot of the technology, and Dan wrote about this this week in a great little piece. Um, a lot of technology in the iPhone 10 was originally introduced in the Apple Watch. And these things kind of build off each other and and play off of each other. And um, so I was thinking about if, you know, they have this investment in micro LED technology. And in theory, from what I've read, they could potentially embed a camera in that. Now, for the watch, what that does is is pretty simple to think about. Instead of having two cameras, some weird unwieldy thing, number one, you have a camera that just is underneath the display, right? And when you want to take a selfie or do FaceTime or whatever, you just look down at it. But if you want to take photos, you could do a thing where you would basically tap on it, tell it to take a photo, and then you have to do this broad gesture where you turn your wrist toward the world, which does two things. Number one, it makes it so that you no longer have to uh, uh, have two cameras on the device. But number two, it lets everybody know you're taking a picture of them so they don't be creeped out by it. And so I was thinking about that in, in the context of uh, wearing glasses and stuff like that, right? The thing that makes people concerned is that you're going to be recording them doing this, doing that. But It's the surreptitiousness of it. But if you're going to be having augmented reality glasses, they have to have cameras on them. That's just the way. I mean, you could have infrared and yes, blah, blah, blah. But it would be weird if they had a bunch of cameras on there and didn't let you take pictures. So assuming that they do make glasses and assuming that they do uh, have to have cameras in them, how do you do it and make it A, not ugly, and B, not creepy? 
And so, you know, there are ways, I guess, you make it have a little flash thing and you got to touch it like on the side and stuff like that to make it work. But these are the kind of things that Apple thinks very deeply about and very hard about. And you see it in the products when they come out because they don't make a product like Google Glass that makes everybody very uncomfortable. The, the Apple Watch does not make people uncomfortable unless, I guess, you play for a major league baseball team or something. But yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to bring up that this is not the first time – this Bloomberg report is not the very first instance of talking about AR glasses. We've talked about it on this program a number of times. Uh, The Financial Times had a report about it in in terms of AR taking the lead over Project Titan, the self-driving car initiative. Um, There was a claim on Reddit that a Project Mirror Shades were the smart glasses and that they were very likely to be canceled. There was the the Robert Scoble – suggestion that that Apple's working with Carl Zeiss for the optics for it. There there have been a number of different reports suggesting that this is definitely an area of experimentation for Apple. Yeah. And you know, whether or not we chain ourselves to the Apple's going to release in 2020 rumor is another matter, but certainly this is obviously one that Apple's got in the R&D lab. And Apple has said repeatedly, Tim Cook has said publicly that he sees AR as the future. He sees a lot of potential in the technology. And I think he's right. Um, it's just that there's a problem of getting to a point where it's friendly and accessible for consumers. If you think about the technology we have now, and again, we talked about the laws of physics and doing this and that and whatever. But if you think about the technology now, we can't even keep our Apple Watch display on all the time. How are you going to get a head-mounted display that doesn't have a big old hunk and battery on it and has a bunch of cameras and everything else? And like, how would you do that? You got to remember that Google Glass was not an augmented reality display in the typical sense. It was basically just a heads up display. They were a waveguide with a little prism. And the thing is, is that you've got power demands. You've got brightness requirements to be able to use it in in a regular setting outdoors in daylight. You've got all these different things. And the way that you're going to have to do that is by using micro LED. And so... Micro-LED is the, the, the one technology we have right now that allows you to have those low power requirements, those low heat requirements, and the brightness that you need to pull it off. And so to bring it all full circle, when we talk about how do you get rid of the notch on the iPhone 10, micro-LED is another way that potentially they could lay the groundwork with these types of devices to have that in a future AR headset. You can see where they would start to lay the groundwork well, for that sort of stuff, where it builds on itself. At the beginning of the show, you said I, uh, we, we talked a little bit about how quaint the, the 2007 phone feels and how in 10 years the 2017 phone is going to feel quaint. Yeah. In, 2000, in, in 2027, you won't have to carry around a brick of glass in your pocket as a phone. You'll be wearing these glasses. Maybe. And the phone will definitely seem quaint. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's not like it, – it's always easy to go, oh, we'll have flying cars or whatever. Well, no, but this I is mean, not the flying car. 10 years car later thing. and this it's still a slab the, of glass. Yes, we are. And that's one of the reasons that people talk about it as being a commodity. So it's it's a hard problem to solve. But the question is, is, is this form the eventual form? Is this the final form of the phone? Or does it become something else? I think the phone m- maintains its position as the centerpiece of things. I think it's something that you'll always have on you because um, for a number of reasons um, – that will be the primary way of interacting. But I think that eventually, as we talked about, you have this decentralized computing where uh, your authentication and verification of you is either on the phone or on a device that you're wearing that knows that you are who you are, and then you can access whatever you want from your other devices. They all get yeah, well, the, information the, the, from the The watch cloud. runs independently. The watch is independent now. Sort of. Right? You have to set it up with the phone, but 
for most, it's on its own. It doesn't require the Can't load music to it on its own. It doesn't require the Wi-Fi connection. Fair enough. But it's grown away from being the secondary display for the primary phone, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. And this rumor is suggesting that the glasses become their own thing as well, that they don't require the phone to be inserted into them. I, I have a hard time seeing, you know, in the next three years is what we're looking at, uh, this device make its way to the market and uh, be something that you wear all day and that works all day. I just I don't think that the technology is even close to there. I don't think we're three years out. Um, I think it's okay, going to take six some- years. Maybe. I mean, it's it's possible, but it makes me think that maybe we're seeing this wrong, right? We had all these ideas about what the Apple Watch was going to be, and it turned out to be something very different. And it turned out to be, in the end, something very different than even Apple thought it launched. They, they've repurposed it through software to make it something different. Maybe we have to think about this in a context different than glasses that you wear all day. Maybe it's more of a niche device for specific use cases like... Uh, education or, uh, you know, I, I, you can see something like that. Specific augmented reality experiences that you open up intentionally. Yeah, like maybe two hours of use type thing, not something you wear all day. Like imagine if you could sell them to schools or you could sell it to, you know, uh, a, a tour group or something like that. Uh, think of the application of that or, or for people uh, who drive for a living, you know, to get directions and stuff. Uh, th- there are all kinds of specific use cases where it would be very, very valuable. And the technology may not be there to be something that you wear all day, but perhaps there are specific use cases for that. And that would be a change for Apple because that's not usually the consumer that they sell to. But if they see an untapped market there and they think that they could make a difference in it, I think that they would explore it. I mean, certainly they sell plenty of niche products now. You know, Do you think the HomePod is going to come out and sell 10 million? I, I think that... You know, not at its price point. It, not not in a winter season where the Google Home and the Alexa Dot are going to sell for twenty nine. Yeah, bucks. how many how many cylinder Mac Pros do you think Apple's selling right now? Even though they're on the website, how many Mac Minis do you think they're selling? So they're not afraid <laughs> yeah. of selling niche products, and they don't like to introduce new niche products for for a number of reasons. Uh, mostly, I think Wall Street pressure. But I could see them getting into that space if it excites people. And uh, if they see a potential to start to build something from there, much like the Apple TV when it started. Fair. We're going to get a lot of emails since you mentioned wearing glasses while driving, you know. Okay. That was one of the problems with Google Glass was that there are laws in some municipalities and some areas and states where if you're having a a screen in front of your face, it's, it's... a violation of motor vehicle well, laws. All right. Well, motor vehicle laws. I'm talking about a hypothetical product. People got ticketed for wearing I'm talking Google about a glass. hypothetical product and hypothetical use cases. And we're going to get hypothetical well, emails. I'll enjoy reading them <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Learning, which now features every course from lynda.com, the leader in online learning with 20 years of experience. LinkedIn Learning is for problem solvers, go-getters, for people who want to make moves in their career. Perhaps you want to create infographics, overcome procrastination, or redesign your website. Everything you need to achieve more is on LinkedIn Learning. If you use any Adobe software, LinkedIn Learning has the most comprehensive selection of courses on Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects, and more to help you learn everything from photo editing to vector graphics to 3D animation techniques. LinkedIn Learning works with publishers like Adobe to develop updated courses that publish with every new release. They also offer dozens of series, including graphic design tips and tricks and Motion Graphics Weekly. LinkedIn Learning has courses for all experience levels, covering a wide range of creative techniques, technical skills, business strategies, and more. And I I have to tell you, I've been going through the LinkedIn Learning courses, and I've been finding things about about marketing, about 
finding an audience and the sorts of, of things you should do if you were trying to build a product. I, I really like LinkedIn Learning. It's accessible. You know, it, it, the other courses in there are, are things like 3D animation, and AR and VR, and even some courses on IT, which are all the kinds of things that we were talking about when we were in uh, in Adorama in January for, mm-hmm. well, Adorama in January, February or something for the professionals session mm-hmm. that we had. So with a LinkedIn Learning membership, you can quickly find the right video course for you from the extensive library, learn from industry experts who are passionate about teaching, explore course recommendations that are curated just for you, and use project files and quizzes to validate your learning. Courses are structured so you can learn from start to finish or jump to a specific chapter, and watch shorter bite-sized segments. You can learn at your own pace using the method you prefer, and get transcripts for each video so you can watch, listen, or read along. And, and there are no hidden charges or upsells. You just access all the courses you want, all for the one monthly price, and it's available worldwide. And we've got a special deal for you. You can get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com insider. That's linkedin.com insider, all lowercase. And you can learn from anywhere from your computer, tablet, or mobile device. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. And when you support our sponsors, you make this podcast possible. So, Neil, you like Face ID. I do, yeah. How would you like it on your iPad? I think it would be even better on an iPad than it is on the iPhone because I can't think of a usage case where it would, my face would be obstructed in any way. I mean, you're not using your iPad discreetly under a table during a meeting. You're not like rolling over out of bed to check your iPad. You're not, um, you know, you're not using it with a scarf out in the winter or uh, anything like that. I think that that Face ID on an iPad makes even more sense than it does on an iPhone because it would not really have any issues, you know, unless you're checking your iPad before you go out for a masquerade or something. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what the situation would be where your face would be obstructed using an iPad. 99% of the use of an iPad is going to be sitting on somebody's couch. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is the idea of Apple Pay for websites, Apple Pay within apps, which we've seen already, and Apple Pay Cash, which is in messages in the beta of iOS. And so spreading Face ID to the iPad Pro just means further places you can use Apple Pay, whether it's for the web, for apps, or person-to-person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that Face ID is in many ways more convenient than touch ID in some ways less convenient, but I don't think any of the negatives would apply on an iPad. I mean, I can't think of one way that one of the negatives would apply on an iPad. The use cases that people always cite, you know, when I'm, when I'm paying with Apple pay at the store, I got to tilt my phone toward, well, you wouldn't do that with an iPad. You'd be at home on your couch ordering something on Amazon. I want to see the person who's paying in store with an iPad. (laughs) My parents go on vacation and take photos with an iPad. So there you go. There are those. Well, that's cool. That's fine. I get that. But, you know, whipping that 12 inch out, (laughs) 12.9 inch out to to swipe it over the payment terminal. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I, I cannot think of a scenario where touch ID would be better than face ID on an iPad. I just can't. I, I can't think of one. So I think I think I for one welcome our face ID overlords. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, and I think it should be the same way on the Mac eventually. I think that they brought touch ID to the Mac too late. The fact that it just came a year ago uh, is kind of ridiculous. It it should have been years ago. Um, I think that I think that face ID people there are going to be people who are upset that touch ID is not around. And that's fine. I get it. There are some situations. Yes, I will admit there are some situations where touch ID would be more advantageous than face ID, but face ID, I think by and large is better. Um, touch ID is gone. Let it go. Goodbye. The next iPad is going to ditch 
Touch ID, but it's not going to, according to the rumors, have an OLED display, which is not a surprise because the OLED display on the iPhone 10 is its most expensive component. So I think what you'll see is new iPad Pros next year. The rumor is the 10.5-inch one, but I would expect the 12.9-inch would get an update as well. Uh, thinner bezels, which would mean I don't think it'll be any thinner than the side ones that they did on the 10.5-inch this year, but I think that the top and bottom, the, the chin and forehead, for lack of better terms, basically go away. And you don't have to worry about a notch with Face ID on the iPad because I think they'll still have some form of a bezel because it won't be an OLED screen, so they can't go edge to edge. So I think what you'll have is a uniform bezel around all four sides of it, um, and it won't be any thicker on the top and bottom like it currently is. And my hope is that the 12.9 inch would be redesigned with the even thinner side bezels that the 10.5 got, because when they redid the 12.9 this year, they did not uh, redesign the, uh, the, 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 they didn't give the thinner bezels. So by shaving a little bit off the top and bottom, you not only make it smaller, you make it lighter as well, which I think again is a big, as somebody used the 12.9 inch, I think that's a big advantage there to get the weight down a little bit. They could go the other direction and do what they did with the 10.5 and use the smaller bezels to make the screen a little bigger, but I don't really see the need for that. The 12.9 inch screen is basically the same size as the, as the uh, MacBook Pro, the 13 inch. So I'd say keep the screen size the same at 12.9. It's much bigger and it's fine. Shrink the bezels all around, make it lighter. And then on the 10.5 inch, you ditch touch ID, you give it face ID, you shrink the top and bottom bezels, make it lighter. And I think it's a win. I think it's a winner of a product. I agree. I want to take a second and just talk about Jeff Williams for a moment. Jeff Williams is the chief operating officer of Apple. And I, I feel like we don't ever bring his name up, and we probably ought to. We talk about Tim Cook being the operations genius all the time because that was his position before he became chief executive officer. But Jeff Williams doesn't come up very much. And we had rumors that we talked about for a period of a couple of months at least, talking about how the iPhone ten was going to be in short supply. Mm-hmm. Right? How you know, and then they varied. They varied as rumors do. You know how there were going to be almost none available at launch. There were going to be some available at launch, but none in stores. Or that January would be the big quarter because that would be when the availability really turned on. That they were going to be in low production. All of these kinds of things. And it was it was the initial rush for the staying up at three a.m. ordering process, right? And people got their ship dates. The phone has shipped to those people faster than originally mm-hmm. projected. And you can walk into any Apple store in the country right now and get one. And if those rumors that we talked about at length had been accurate, you would not be able to obtain one for love or money. I mean, I don't know that you can walk into any store and get one, but yeah. Is there a big shortage? If you wanted to go get one today, could you? To get an iPhone ten? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still a waiting list. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, all of those rumors were incorrect. And second of all, Jeff Williams and his team and the rest of Apple pulled off a major coup in, in the face of reports that said that it wasn't possible. Well, there's still a wait is what I'm saying. You can't go into any store and get one, but it's better than expected. Much better. Yes. All right. That's all I've got for this week. Neil, you? That's it. All right. Thank you very much. This has been Apple Insider Podcast. We are so glad you were here listening with us. and We hope you join us again next week. Check out the appleinsider.com application. Check out our YouTube channel. And please feel free to leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We hope to hear from you. Please send Neil all the emails you want. There you go. Until next week.